This week on the show, we cover FreeBSD 11.4's RC2, uh, OpenBSD 6.7 on the Pinebook Pro 64, how OpenZFS keeps your data safe, how the uh, FreeBSD on EC2 porting is progressing with an audio podcast, as well as the FreeBSD 2020 community survey and more this week's episode of BSD Now. ESD Now, episode 354, ZFS Safety Data, recorded for the 10th of June 2016. This episode is brought to you by Tarsnap, the online backup for the truly paranoid. Hi, I'm your host, Benedict Koschling. And I'm Alan Jude. Welcome to this episode, everyone. And we're excited to bring you the news from the BSD world this week, as well as some things from here and there that we found. And the headlines this week start with the FreeBSD 11.4 release candidate 2 is now available. Yes, uh, so this is from last week, really. Uh, so a few days after this episode comes out, uh, 11.4 final release should be out. But either way, uh, it is worth checking out. So we have links there with uh, all the details on the release candidate. Um, but also we can take a quick look through some of the change log. The cam control utility has been extended to have better support for accessible Mac address configuration, allowing you to actually change the size of the hard drive and some of those type of things. FreeBSD update has uh, two new commands, including updates ready and show config to find out, you know, if you have updates that are staged but not installed yet and so on. Cron got some new flags, uh, which suppress mail on successful runs and suppresses logging for command execution, etc. ZFS has been updated to support renaming bookmarks. The FSCK utility for uh, UFS and the new FS utility have been updated uh, to fix recovery information when sector sizes are larger than expected. Uh, up to 64k. Uh, cert CTL has been added. So this is a tool I started writing and Kyle Evans helped me finish, um, which as part of including the uh, default Mozilla certificate bundle in the base system of FreeBSD, cert CTL allows you to specifically blacklist any certificates you don't want to trust, but also to be able to seamlessly append other certificates to your trust chain. So uh, if you work and an enterprise that happens to have a caching proxy or something that does SSL intercept and needs to have a certain extra certificate added to the root bundle, uh, search CTL makes that very easy. So it allows you to, you know, add your self-signed certificates that you want to trust into the system trust store. So very glad to see that making it into 11.4 and 12.2 as they come up. BZIP has been updated, uh, which is interesting because BZIP hadn't changed in about 10 years. So interesting to pull in that update. A bunch of other tools like TCP dump, unbound, the libarchive, NTPD, the file command, XED, etc. Plus, you know, Clang, LLVM, LOD, LOD, etc. have all been updated to Clang version 10. Uh, also the ZFS intent log maximum block size is now tunable. Uh, allowing you a bit more control over the performance on FreeBSD. And the libalias library and IPFW packet filters have been updated to add support for carrier-grade NAT subnets, which is very useful if you're using it for large-scale NAT. And there are some other changes, but the release notes aren't finished yet because the release isn't done yet uh, when we're recording this. But by the time you read it, this page should be updated and uh, you should go check it out. Yeah, we'll let you know, of course, when the release is here and you can 
update your systems if you are still on 11. Yeah, you know, there's a lot of good stuff in 12. Uh, so, but if you're still on the 11 train, uh, you can do a nice minor update uh, to 11.4 and that'll give you the newer tool chain and help you survive a bit longer. You know, now's the time to be switching to 12 because, you know, we're going to be on 13 in less than a year. Yeah, you might start. So you don't want to still be on 11. <laughs> start that journey early. Okay, um, speaking of installations and new versions, uh, we have an article here about installing OpenBSD 6.7 current on a Pinebook Pro 64. And uh, that is basically a work in progress document. But uh, as of June 6th, they have a couple of things here already. So uh, they update that, of course, um, when there's new uh, developments. But uh, the list of things that work on the Pinebook Pro 64 with OpenBSD are the LAN via the external USB Ethernet dongle, the Wi-Fi via the built-in Broadcom chipset, the serial console, X11, using the correct DTB, uh, the touchpad, and the brightness controls. Uh, the built-in keys don't work yet, but maybe that will change also. Uh, what doesn't work is the real console yet, so they also seem to be working on that, and they haven't tested the suspend and resume, the sound, and the webcam yet. So there's a bit of a disclaimer here. Uh, this is just... Um, installation of OpenB 6.7 on the Pinebook Pro. There might be yeah, some warranty voided or no warranty of any kind uh, that are for the things that you uh, re might read in this article. Uh, if you mess up your local disk, your Pinebook's disk, etc., you have been warned. Uh, but you basically go ahead and uh, start the serial console built into the headphone jack. And in their opinion, every professional workstation or laptop should have this. <laughs> they would love to have a serial console on their ThinkPad but uh, you will need the following ports to continue or part. The Pinebook Pro itself, a serial to headphone jack adapter, and a USB Ethernet adapter to download the OpenBSD install sets. Okay, then uh, once you switch to the serial console, uh, this is by default disabled, and you have to manually flip a switch to enable that for security reasons, I guess. Um, but then you follow the instructions in a separate link to remove the back cover. Uh, a little bit of screw driving involved. But uh, then you flip the correct switch, and then you can start the installation. Uh, that pretty much follows the OpenBSD website by just um, getting the sources from FTP, and then creating your mini root 67.image and put that on an uh, SD disk or SD card, and then boot from this, and then move ahead with the installation. So that's what they cover here in a couple of screenshots and descriptions what to do, and then. Uh, once you have the serial console properly running and the boot messages uh, are uh, displayed, you can see them and uh, what the system is detecting and what kind of devices are there. So that's a good way to start. Uh, there is plenty of things to uh, start, but once you have all the basic installation things uh, done, you can reboot and do the Wi-Fi setup because you don't want to run without Wi-Fi. That would be a bit uh, silly here. Uh, the BWFM is the utility you need to run to download the firmware using the FW updates, and you use DoS for that, and they describe how to do this as well. And then you can basically start X11, and uh, they also provide a nice screenshot so, so you can see that it actually works. And yeah, this is pretty much a good uh, way to get your OpenBSD journey on the Pinebook chart. All right, time for news roundup this week. We have an understanding of how OpenZFS keeps your data safe 
over at IX Systems. Yeah, so they're actually pointing out uh, a recent blog that Jim did uh, on Ars Technica, right, as an article. So they say, veteran technology writer Jim Salter wrote an excellent guide to the ZFS file system's features and performance that we had to share. There's plenty of information in the article for ZFS newbies and advanced users alike. Uh, be sure to check out the article over at uh, Ars Technica to learn more about these ZFS concepts. Like Jim has a whole series there going back to even just the basics of, you know, what's a pool and a VDEV up through this replication stuff. So in particular, uh, Jim was using uh, the latest OpenZFS. And one of the most interesting data points in this article was the major performance advantage of using ZFS replication over something standard like rsync. In this case, he's using uh, Syncolite, a tool he helped write originally for doing the ZFS replication and comparing it to rsync. The thing with rsync is when you're comparing or when you're doing an rsync run, it can make sure it doesn't need to copy a lot of data that hasn't changed. Part of that can be by doing checksums on the data on the sending side and the receiving side. And then only if they're different, then it will figure out which blocks of the files it needs to transfer. So it can save a lot of bandwidth by not having to transfer data that didn't actually change. However, it still takes time to actually check some of the file and you know you have to read the file on both sides and see if it's the same before you can decide not to send it. Whereas ZFS can know for a fact that that data didn't change by knowing the birth time of each block on the disk. So that means you know in this particular case of copying uh, a large amount of, of data that in the absolute best case, if the disks never took any time to respond, rsync would still take over two hours to do this copy, whereas uh, ZFS can do it in eight seconds. Because as it turns out, not a lot has actually changed. Uh, and so ZFS doesn't have to send very much. And this, in this particular case, it's a 1.9 terabyte VM image. So like a VMDK file from VMware or, or VirtualBox or something. So the file has changed. There are some changes in this file, but it's one big file. So rsync has to walk the whole thing on both sides and figure out which blocks have changed and send only those blocks. ZFS knows from its snapshots that only these bytes have actually changed and can instantly send those. So eight seconds versus two and a half hours means 1150 times faster. Mm -hmm. Wow. Yeah, normally as an academic... Yeah, makes a big difference. Yeah. As an academic, you would think mm, these numbers would be very, very... Uh, skewed and not very accurate, but you try it out yourself and you see how fast ZFS can sync the data on both sides. Very cool. Yeah, you know, it's um, rsync can also run into problems when you have a lot of small files. Just the actually having to go through and look at each file and be like, is the date on this file newer? Is the date on this file newer? Times 100,000 files can take a long time. Where ZFS just has to know which blocks changed. Oh, those new blocks are new and those blocks are changed. Let me package those together and ship them. And so, you know, a ZFS send usually starts almost immediately and then just maxes out the, the connection you have between the servers until it's done. Excellent. Okay, then we switch gears a bit to bringing FreeBSD to EC2 in last week in AWS. Uh, this is an interview, I guess, uh, or description. Yeah, it's a podcast. Oh, right. Yeah, the description reads uh, about Colin Percival, because that's what the interview is with. And uh, they described uh, it as Colin is the founder of TarSnap, a secure online backup service which combines the flexibility and scriptability of the standard Unix Tar utility with strong encryption, deduplication, and the reliability of Amazon S3 storage. Having started work on TarSnap in 2006, Colin is among the first generation of users of Amazon Web Services and has written dozens of articles about his experiences with AWS on his blog. Colin has been a member of the FreeBSD project for 15 years 
and has served in that time as the project security officer and a member of the core team. Starting in 2008, he led the effort to bring FreeBSD to Amazon EC2. And for the past seven years, he has been maintaining this support, keeping FreeBSD up to date with all the latest changes and functionality in Amazon EC2. In his spare time, Colin serves as the alumni representative of the Senate of his alma mater, uh, Simon, Simon Fraser University, where he frequently brings a perspective from the world of startups to the ivory tower. Yeah, I think this is well worth listening to if you have some free time or uh, uh, some audio or want to get to know what EC2 or how FreeBSD uh, supports uh, EC2 or the other way around. Okay, then we uh, want to give you the, the pointers or the opportunity to, to participate in the 2020 FreeBSD community survey. Uh, so this is uh, the FreeBSD core team invites you as people who use FreeBSD to complete the 2020 FreeBSD community survey. The survey, the purpose of this is to collect uh, quantitative data from the public in order to help guide the project's priorities and efforts. Uh, this is only the second time a survey has been conducted by the FreeBSD project itself, and so your input is very valued. Uh, so it will run until June 16th, uh, so you have a less than another week uh, in order to get out there and give us your feedback. But it asks simple questions like uh, what type of machines you use FreeBSD on, right? Do I use it on servers or only as appliances or in embedded or desktop, laptop, only in the cloud, that kind of thing. If you use FreeBSD at home or in work or school and so on, how long you've been using it, what you use it for, uh, how you got into it, what platforms are interesting to you, and and lots and lots more stuff. And a lot of these uh, will guide decisions within the project about uh, which services still make sense and so on. Yep. If we don't uh, hear from the user community, then we uh, are kind of in the dark about what kind of priorities we should set or what kind of directions the project should uh, focus its efforts on. Yeah, and, and how we can best uh, serve the users. So to answer that question, we do need to get input from the users. So please go out there and give us your feedback. All right, now it's time for the Beastie Bits this week. We have the FreeBSD project proposals up on the FreeBSD Foundation website. So this is a thing that they do occasionally or uh, at least once a year to give uh, people the opportunity to uh, submit project proposals for uh, developers uh, in case you have a project you'd like to work on that would improve FreeBSD uh, because the FreeBSD Foundation is soliciting the submission of proposals for work that directly benefit any of the major subsystems or the infrastructure within the FreeBSD operating system. And so the request focus here could be that uh, could benefit a work uh, of any of the subsystems or the FreeBSD infrastructure in general, although we have some key uh, focus areas this time, uh, for example, installation and deployment tooling, uh, including packet base or containerization improvements, such as the jail orchestration or Docker compatibility or if you want to improve the security of FreeBSD and the applications running on it. Uh, development tooling could also be a focus area where debuggers, fuzzers, static analysis tools could be one of the areas that you can uh, be funded. As well as establishing FreeBSD as a leader in projects with multiple operating system support, for example, ZFS, LLVM, or LibArchive. And last but not least, developing improvements towards infrastructure and tooling. So you can submit proposals. There are uh, instructions. There's basically a Google Doc that you have to fill out with a project proposal, and then the foundation will get back to you and discuss this internally. That is viable and doable, and then hopefully the project will be funded. Yep. Uh, so next up in the BC Bits, we have a bunch of videos from Tom Jones. Uh, so our friend TJ 
has been streaming his work on hacking with BSD and hardware, uh, and a bunch of those are now up on YouTube. So you can see his streams over the last couple of weeks, including driving an APA 102 and its LEDs from FreeBSD, an introduction to uh, an introduction to an introduction to hardware, <laughs> <laughs> uh, hacking on FreeBSD, which is based on his tutorial uh, that he came. Uh, but also looking at uh, doing bit banging using a shell script or uh, committing crimes against computers. Mm, I'd like to watch that. And uh, I think the, the best one I see here is Serial Over Robot. Oh, that one's from nine years ago. But uh, anyway, he's done a bunch of live streams, usually for about an hour, although one of them is almost two hours there. Um, but very interesting. And if you're into hacking on small hardware and, and using FreeBSD to do interesting things, it's definitely worth checking out. Uh, we'll stay a bit in Scotland for the next item. Uh, there's the Scotland Open Source Podcast called Awesome. Yep. Uh, awesome. Yes, this is the Scotland Open Source Users Meetup, oh. and they have a podcast, and their uh, first guest is actually going to be TJ, talking about uh, his work on FreeBSD and running the 57 North Hack Lab. So check that out. And speaking of live streaming, actually, and Tom Jones even, We've set the date for the next uh, of the FreeBSD office hours. Uh, so if you're interested in talking to a bunch of other FreeBSD users, and in particular, if you have any questions or anything uh, that would benefit from answers from, directly from developers or other users and so on, uh, then you should come out. Uh, so we have the videos for the last four different office hours uh, are up on, on the wiki page I linked here. Uh, so the first one was Tom Jones and I, uh, and many, many other FreeBSD developers answering questions that came in from the chat room and, and other people on the stream. That one went very well. Uh, the next one, we tried to do the similar thing, but at a different time to catch people in other time zones, like people in Australia and Asia and so on. Uh, fewer people uh, and fewer developers, but we did answer uh, quite a few questions, so that worked out nicely. Uh, the third office hours was uh, getting to ask questions of the FreeBSD Foundation and that team. Uh, so that was interesting. And then the last one uh, we did, number four, was actually getting uh, the chat room to ask questions of the people running in the FreeBSD core team election, uh, which wraps up a week from now. There was that. Uh, but anyway, we'll be back to just the general questions about basically anything related to BSDs. Do come out and hang out with us for an hour or so uh, on that day where we will talk about everything about FreeBSD. So if there's a bug you're hitting that you'd like to get more attention on, or a question you have, or ideas, or anything you have, you can bring them here and we'll talk about it. it. Should be fun. Yeah, this is for uh, new users or people who want to start developing on FreeBSD or want to make a first uh, patch or contribute something uh, outside of the source tree. Uh, this is definitely a good way to uh, interact with the community and see the faces behind, if they have cameras on, uh, behind the code. And yeah, it's a, it's a nice interactive experience. Uh, it's very intense sometimes, but the hour is well spent, I would say. Yeah, it's uh, quite interesting because it's, um, you know, in the very first one, we had very uh, intense questions that were, you know, developer to developer. Then the next question was very simple. It was like, what's your favorite feature of FreeBSD? So we covered everything from, you know, brand new user through, you know, somebody who's been a developer longer than me and had a very specific question about how a subsystem works. Mm -hmm. Yeah, this is your chance to actually hit up the people uh, that actually developed the code and can tell you, oh, in that specific code path, there's something else going on. And this is what you normally not get without reading the code. Uh, so yeah, tune in to that one and then you'll see uh, some of us uh, online. This week's episode of BSD Now is sponsored by our friends at Tarsnap. 
the only secure online backup service you can trust. Even paranoids need backups. So tarsnap works via the command line in the same way as the tar command, except for the tar file ends up getting created in the cloud. But importantly, all of your data is encrypted on your machine before it goes to the cloud. And your encryption key never leaves your machine. So it means no one at Tarsnap, no one at Amazon, and no one anywhere else can access your backups without the key. So as long as you keep the key safe, your data is safe. And Tarsnap also uses Colin's uh, differencing engine, uh, which is able to uh, deduplicate data and avoid having to send data that's already backed up into the cloud again. So it makes it really nice for backing up your laptop, even on the road, uh, because it can make those backups as small as possible. By doing deduplication and compression, and then the encryption, you make sure that you're sending only the stuff that actually changed and uh, that it's all safe before it goes to the cloud. So check them out, tarsnap.com slash bsdnow. All right, now it's time for feedback and questions this week. We have a bit of uh, feedback, uh, you know, piled up, but uh, nevertheless, we will answer it, of course. So even if you have to wait a bit for it to be available, it's coming down the line. If you keep listening, you will eventually hear it. And the first that we have this week is Tom about writing for LPI Studio. Oh, the LPI exam. Uh, goes like this. As you and the listeners are well aware, since you covered it a few months ago, the Linux Professional Institute, LPI, uh, is now featuring the BSD Specialist exam. They also provide free study resources for the exam and currently have study resources on their Linux Essentials and LPIC-1 101 exam with the 102 exam being in development. However, work is on the way to write the study resources for the BSD Specialist exam and you can help there. They are looking for contributors, so it would be nice if some experienced listeners would help out either by writing chapters for the online book or help the chapters uh, written by others. Uh, there are resource links available, and um, if I'm not mistaken, they would also pay you for this kind of work. Yeah, there's a, the contributor link uh, explains how that works. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so if you have a bit of free time and are still stuck at home some uh, way or the other, and you have some BSD knowledge, then definitely uh, be aware that this is not just one BSD. This is about general uh, BSD. So this is Dragonfly, FreeBSD, OpenBSD, and NetBSD. So they need people from all of the projects uh, to help out. Yeah. So uh, it's storage, it's a bit of networking, there's uh, basics like installation. So I think even if you don't know everything, like who does, uh, you can still contribute your part in like, like say, do the install chapter or whatever you are good at. So yeah, get in touch with them. And thanks for letting us know, Tom, about this. There can never be enough uh, BSD documentation out there. All right, then next up is Luke uh, with a question about RStudio. This is uh, short, but still important. Uh, I somewhat recently transitioned from Linux to OpenBSD and have loved the decision except for one sticking point. RStudio has been an integral part of my workflow and doesn't appear to be available on OpenBSD. Is there any option or workaround that you're aware of to get this up and running? I'm not actually that familiar with RStudio. I know that a little bit about what it is and so on. Well, you could always virtualize it if you have it in a platform uh, different than OpenBSD running, then you can just... Um, well, I think OpenBSD's hypervisor only runs OpenBSD on OpenBSD. Oh, okay. That's kind of a, uh, <laughs> a stopper there. I thought they had, uh, in the meantime, developed the ability to virtualize other operating systems or other BSDs. Um, so 
There is a port of RStudio for FreeBSD, which suggests it is possible to have it on OpenBSD as well, because mm -hmm. it's just a big Java app by the look of it. So yeah, um, you could try uh, FreeBSD, which does have an RStudio package, uh, or look into actually uh, either creating a port of RStudio yourself uh, for OpenBSD or convincing somebody over at OpenBSD to create that for you. But it does look like it is a thing that that could exist for OpenBSD, and it's just that nobody has done the work for it. But it does look that RStudio is there uh, in the FreeBSD package repositories. Okay. So that leads, you know, good chance that that's actually doable on OpenBSD. And uh, it's just a matter of making sure all the dependencies are there and being able to run it. Because again, it looks like it's just a Java app, and so it should be fairly straightforward as far as uh, getting to what you're looking for. Yeah, there's, there's no uh, hard limit to not have that but importantly it doesn't look like it'll actually take a lot of porting to get the software to work it's just a matter of making sure all the dependencies are there mm -hmm. yeah maybe they can use the uh, FreeBSD port as an inspiration yeah likely to list the dependencies and where to put what but in general it's a java app so it will just work once you have the java running on OpenBSD. could it be in package source as well so they can get it this way um i don't know because that way you would get it i don't know if package source has a handy website like fresh ports to find out if something is yeah, ported already <laughs> or <laughs> available, because I'm fairly sure all the, if it's the R studio that I'm thinking of, um, all the statisticians have, would have it ported there. Yeah. So yes, uh, it does look like there's a version of R studio, at least in the work in progress branch. Although this looks to be quite an old version, 0 0.95 versus the one point something much new. Uh, it looks like there was an attempt to do it in 2012. But it was last touched in 2014. Oh, okay. Yeah, that might explain the old version. Oh, uh, no, it says in January the package was reborn. So maybe somebody's bringing it back to life. Oh, excellent. That's good news. So if you have or know something, how to get, make. I'm not good at reading the package source website. So I'm not <laughs> sure about package source. Yeah. But there is a FreeBSD package of it that is up to date. Yeah. If one of us uh, uh, doesn't know, then maybe one of our listeners does. And if you. Have a solution here that we haven't covered then send it to feedback at bsdnow.tv and we'll be happy to cover that in a future episode to uh, link back so people know about it okay thanks for that question and now we have matt as an uh, feedback here and that goes like the following hi guys great show thank you uh, like many others i feel i should be putting in my due diligence prior to asking questions okay Luckily, you seek feedback and questions so much that you've convinced me to just ask, which is great because I don't know when I'll have time to research and test this concept on my own. Huh? See? You know, uh, with that, maybe we can help steer you in the right direction so that you can spend your time researching the right thing instead of, you know, going down the wrong path or something. Yeah, that might save you a bit of time. Okay, so uh, I find jails to be quite elegant. As a, at a high level, they're easy enough to understand, but getting into the weeds will sometimes produce questions that aren't easy to answer. I hope you can help provide some clarity for how to approach to what I'm interesting, uh, interested in doing. I've got multiple VLANs on my network with a PFSense router. My home secure slash trusted network is VLAN 10. It houses a PC or two, as well as a Unify managed switch and a cloud key. My FreeBSD server is by itself on VLAN 50. On the server, I've got jails for Bitwarden, Bookstack, and others. Uh, for the internet access, I have a cloned loopback device, meaning they're on a separate internal network. There's a PF rule to nut the outgoing requests. Uh, what I want to do is create a jail to act as a backup or substitute for the Unify Cloud Key. The 
Cloud Key provides the management interface that links the Unify switch together and assigns the VLANs and traffic rules. The problem is that the switches in Cloud Key or Proposed Jail must be on the same VLAN. What I think I should be doing uh, is send a VLAN trunk to the server. The server host would uh, have to tag all its outgoing packets with VLAN 50, and the Unified Jail would have to tag its packets as VLAN 10. Yes, I could also probably leave one of those as untagged and the other as tagged, but I prefer to tag it all. This should work, right? So my questions finally are, first, does my approach make sense? Yes. Um, basically, what you would do is have the switch send the packets to the FreeBSD machine tagged, uh, where you would then create multiple interfaces, I mean, a, a VLAN 50 and a VLAN 10 interface off your one NIC, and then the packets with the right tags would go into the right one of those virtual interfaces. It works very similar to that um, second loopback device you're using for NAT on the jails, except for it's uh, basically a filter that goes on the NIC, and you know VLAN 10 will only receive the packets that um, have the tag VLAN 10, and any packets you send via VLAN 10 will get tagged as 10 and then go out on the NIC, uh, and the same for VLAN 50. Mm -hmm. uh, the second question is, would the unified jail need to be a VNet jail? That depends a little bit. Possibly not. Uh, so what you would do is you just have an IP on the VLAN 10 interface that you would assign to that jail, and then the process is in there and use that IP and talk to the network. If the unified controller cloud key thing needs to be able to set its address or you know demands to be able to see an interface and so on, it might end up having to be VNet, but probably not. Most likely you can just give it an IP on that VLAN 10 interface uh, and it can talk to the network and it'll be fine. Mm -hmm. And the third question is, how do I add VLAN support? Is PF involved? So you create these cloned interfaces that we talked about, yeah, which you're already familiar with doing from the extra loopback you're using for your uh, jails. So you have two approaches. You can either, to that cloned interface list, add whatever your interface name is, say IGB0, so IGB0.10 and IGB0.50, and those will automatically set those up as VLANs. Um, when it sees the dot number, it, it knows it's a VLAN. Or to that cloned interface, you can just add the names VLAN 10 and VLAN 50. Uh, if you do the latter there, then you'll have to set if config lines similar to the ones you have for your existing interface. Something like if config underscore VLAN 10 equals, and you have to configure it. Uh, you have to tell it the VLAN dev, so which NIC the VLANs are actually, you know, what the real hardware is, and then the VLAN number and so on. Uh, it's all in the if config man page. Uh, and there are examples in the FreeBSD handbook. But yeah, you can, if you just add, you know, IGB 0.10 and IGB 0.50 to your cloned interface list in rc.conf, uh, they will just get created. Uh, when you create the if config lines, for those in rc.conf, like if you're going to set a static IP address, most likely you're going to move the static IP address from IGB0, which was untagged before, to VLAN 50, now that it's tagged. The name of the interface, any dots need to be replaced with underscores because rc.conf is all shell variables and you can't have dots in those. So, you know, IGB0.50 becomes IGB0 underscore 50 in rc.conf. But other than that, uh, it's just the same. Is PF involved? Only in that you might need to change your rules slightly to match the right interfaces. You know, if you say only allow traffic out of IGB0, some of that might need to allow out, you know, IGB0.50 or VLAN50 or whatever you call it, so that the right traffic matches the right rules in your firewall. Um, but other than that, there's not really much PF involvement. Just making sure that you pass the traffic for those new interfaces that are suddenly showing up. Okay. Well, I guess in particular, your NAT rules 
uh, might need to change to net out via IGB0.50 or VLAN50 instead of just IGB0. Oh, that makes sense. Okay, so yeah, thank you for your nice feedback. And hopefully we got you some pointers that would make your uh, network work the way you intend to. All right, uh, we have another one uh, from Morgan about uh, getting some commentary from us. Uh, the issue is the following, or the message goes, Hi, Alan, Benedict, and JT. Excellent. Uh, would love to get an analysis and commentary on this issue that's affecting some but not all of my FreeBSD systems for the past week now. I tried to follow the bug thread, but it's still not clear to me what happened, where the issue lives, is it local or remote code that needs updating, what the fix is, and what the users are supposed to do about it. It sounds like it could be weeks and we can use package again, or until we couldn't use package again. Uh, a concise and clear distillation would be most appreciated. So there's an issue uh, linked to the previous debugzilla bug tracker about the uh, ports uh, part management repository. FreeBSD contains packages with wrong ABI. Right. So this was a change that happened to package a couple of, I guess, months ago now. Sorry, we're quite a backlog of feedback that we're cleaning up. Um, uh, the issue has already been fixed at this point, um, but at the time, the problem was uh, some changes to the package repo metadata causing an incorrect uh, thing. Uh, so one set of packages got built where we had the ABI specific to the version. So it'd be FreeBSD 12.0 AMD64 instead of just FreeBSD 12 AMD64. Uh, and this was causing some problems, but it got fixed relatively quickly, but it did impact people for two or three days anyway. Yeah, that could have caused some head scratching. I can see that. Uh, but luckily, you can now uh, work as intended and the issue doesn't appear anymore. So thanks for the people who worked on this and made the fix possible. Yeah, it looks like it was fixed within three days or so, or maybe a little bit longer than that. Mm -hmm. But yes, uh, all fixed. Uh, sorry we didn't get to that sooner, Morgan. Yeah, but at the end, you got it. If it's an issue that's been brooding a little bit longer, then you could have brought that up in one of our office hour sessions, for example. Not sure if you could get a, the fix right there, but you can at least uh, point people to something that you find important enough that people should uh, focus a little bit more on. And maybe that way you can get an issue to being resolved or at least get something uh, out of that, or at least an answer from a developer. Okay, I'd say this wraps up our episode for this week. So thank everyone uh, for submitting us uh, articles and things that you found on the web that keeps us our show uh, filled not only with content that we put in, but also from you, whether it's feedback and questions or an article that you found on the web that we haven't covered yet. So this is always appreciated. Uh, then we hope you have a nice week and you will definitely hear from us next week again. Bye.